right. <clears throat> well, we made it to our last and final session. Hopefully, this weekend has been helpful and profitable to you. And really, the, the value of retreat isn't all that uh, occurs during this weekend, but in uh, the weeks and months to come as you take all that has been deposited to you, gifted to you by God, and you incorporate, integrate that into your lives. When you advance forward into the world, in the school setting, into your homes, amongst your peers, and you um, show by the way that you live that you do indeed treasure Christ. So we've been uh, taking the previous three sessions to examine what it means to treasure Christ. That In our first session, we, we looked at, okay, you can't treasure what you don't know. So we looked at what it means to know the person of Jesus. And that as we know him more and more, we're transformed into his image. We become more like our Lord and Savior. And that is a continual process from the day we receive uh, Christ to the day when we will go to be with him. Which is kind of what we uh, expanded upon in last night's message. That we have perspective uh, that is very different from the world's. Death is no longer something that we fear, but we consider it gain because Jesus is everything we, we live for. And so it's a win-win situation for us. Uh, and in light of all that, uh, we approach our last uh, message for this morning for the retreat. And we're going to look at the promise. How if we treasure Jesus Christ, well then we can be satisfied because God has given his very best to us. And if he has demonstrated that to us, we can trust that he will provide all that we need for life and godliness. And so in order to do that, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. As you are making your way there, I do want to express my gratitude as well as my family's for just being able to fellowship with you all. Uh, It's been a particular blessing to be able to be here. And so we just wanted to thank you for that. Uh, This morning, Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13. I'll go ahead and read our passage for us, and then we will pray again for the Lord's help. Whose crazy boy is that? (laughs) Philippians 4, beginning verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, You have revived your concern for me. You're indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. God, even now we cling to that last verse and the promise it affords us that you will provide us strength not only to stay awake and listen to a message, but Lord, to apply your word, to live faithfully, to be Christ to others, and to be content in what you lavish and give to us. And so help us now tune our minds and hearts to what you would have in store for us, that we might receive with such gladness the word of God that we would be shaped by it. We ask that you would 
weed away any distractions, that we be fully engaged because your word is precious. Lord, it can nourish our souls and build us up. And so we ask that you be faithful to your promises even now. In Jesus' name, amen. A diamond is precious for the very reason that it's rare. It's a valuable, extraordinary gem because it's not something you buy every day. Right? No guy can afford to give diamonds year after year. And no girl should expect to receive diamonds for her birthday year after year. If you do, you put the high maintenance in high maintenance. A diamond is reserved for special occasions. And those once-in-a-lifetime moments like asking for someone's hand in marriage. A diamond is a rare jewel. And so the great Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, titles his book, one of my favorites, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in it, the author addresses how contentment is the Christian's diamond. Contentment is like a jewel, rare and yet absolutely precious. To give you just a sample, here's a quote from the book. He says, Godliness teaches us this mystery. Not to be satisfied with all the world for our portion, and yet to be content with the meanest condition in which we are. Mark, here lies the mystery of it. A little in the world should content a Christian for his passage, for his lifetime. But all the world, and ten thousand times more, will not content a Christian for his portion. That's deep, right? It's a convicting quote. And I think it's convicting precisely because we have it flip-flop. We think and we live in the opposite. That a lot in the world will content us for our passage, for our time here on earth. But a little in the world will not content us as our portion. I don't know about you, but this is the struggle I find myself entangled in. You know, this is the battle I fight every day when I get out of bed. Will I place my happiness, my satisfaction, my joy, my contentment in Christ and Him alone? Or will I allow anything and everything else to dictate and determine my joy? As the Apostle Paul brings his letter to the Philippians to a close, he starts chapter 4 with the command to stand firm in the Lord. But there's a trick to this. Because anyone can stand firm for a second. But the true test is standing firm for days, for weeks, for years. Standing firm for a lifetime. And that's why treasuring Christ is absolutely necessary. Because contentment, you see, is the key to consistency. Contentment is the key to consistency. When we are content, we have no problem following after Jesus. Discontentment, on the other hand, well, that's the gateway to other sin. It opens up the door to cheating on your test, lying to your friends, or stealing from the store. And it has been the cause of alcoholism, adultery, and the first sin committed by Adam and Eve. When you're discontent, you are vulnerable 
to complain or quit, whether in school, friendships, and even in your faith. And in Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13, Paul teaches us the secret to Christian contempt. It is promised to us. It is obtainable if we obey, if we hold fast to three particular truths. First, Paul says, we must be sure of God's providence. Sure of God's providence. If you don't know what the word providence means, it's a big fancy word for sovereignty. I just chose it because I need to alliterate for my other points. So, preview and spoiler. So the first point, be sure of God's providence. Now it's important to, for us to know the history of Paul's relationship with this church, the Philippians. Ten years have passed when Paul pens this letter. Ten years since Paul last saw these beloved people of Philippi. Ten years since he arrived in that city, preached the gospel, and started this church. Ten years since he's fellowshiped with dear brothers and sisters in Christ and been encouraged. But since then, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Imagine how things would go if you suddenly stopped talking to your best friend for 10 years. Feelings would be hurt. You would be worried. You know, is he or she mad at me? Did I say or do something wrong? Motives would be questioned and bitterness would follow. The relationship would be icy to say the least. And that's why it's taken place that, that the lines of communication between Paul and the Philippians have gone silent. And yet we find this now in verse 10. Paul announces, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you Philippians, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now breeze through this book, you'll find that the apostle constantly commissions the Philippians with the command to rejoice. You see this Philippians 3, 1 and 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. But now here in this verse, Paul participates himself. His heart is big. This is no small occurrence. This is literally mega joy. So despite the little contact communication, Paul rejoices in the Lord greatly. And notice what Paul says to the Philippians. He doesn't accuse them for being bad and terrible friends for being bad and terrible partners in the ministry in the gospel service he doesn't say the philippians lack the willingness or the heart to help he says look i understand you had no opportunity to come to my rescue to come to my aid they didn't have the chance to support paul and we ask how well the details aren't told to us we aren't exactly told what we do know is that 10 years later at last, the Philippians had revived their concern for the Apostle Paul. You were indeed concerned. At no time did they cease thinking and contemplating ways to express their concern. But again, for whatever reason, they are prevented from doing so. And Paul now writes to express the height of his heart at the length of the Philippians' concern. While deeply encouraged by their revived efforts to assist him, Paul shares that what has sustained him through the years and kept him content, gift or not, it has been the Lord's sovereignty. 
Paul is sure of God's providence in his life. If the Philippians weren't able to come and assist and aid him, it doesn't happen outside of God's good plan. God is in control of everything. Even the absence of friends. We see this lesson throughout the pages of Scripture. Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament is betrayed by his own brothers. Sold into slavery. Wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife. Left to rot in jail. And yet God orchestrates something magnificent. In his mighty great plan, Joseph is restored to a position of power. And God uses this series of random and unfortunate events in Joseph's life. So that his entire family and the nation of Israel can survive through tough years of famine in Egypt. His brothers and all others might have meant it for evil, but God certainly meant it for good. In God's providence, He does something bigger and greater. Students, contentment comes from looking at the bigger picture by looking at a bigger God. Don't look at life just from your position because it's not the full picture. And for example, if you take something that's stitched together, I'm not very familiar with arts and craft, but this is what I do know. If you take something that's stitched together and you flip it, turn it to the back, all you see are these random strands, right? You only see these threads of colors, but flip it back around to the front and you can see how all these colorful threads are sewn together to show a cute cat licking its paw. And that's cool, right? Well, in the same, God, he weaves many strands in our lives. Boring things, things that seem pointless, trials we don't understand, difficulties, or even in Paul's case, the lack of support from friends. And God takes all those various strands and he knits them together into his great masterpiece. And from our point of view, from our limited, small, finite perspective, from the back, if you will, we can't see all that God is doing. But we trust that one day, whether in this lifetime or the next, we'll be brought to the front. And we can behold the beauty of God's work. We can be content because He promises He is always working for our ultimate good. Discontentment is dreaming of a brighter tomorrow while missing God's today. Contentment is delighting in God's today because you know in Christ you can be certain of a brighter tomorrow. It's what He's promised. It's the surety that comes from His providence. And so that when you are unsure of surviving school, unsure of your family drama, unsure of financial problems, To be honest, you might never be sure of those things because they might very well be out of your control, but not God's. You can be sure He holds it all in His hands and therefore, sure of His providence, you can be content. Second, contentment is promised to us when we are satisfied with God's provision. Satisfied with God's provision. So first, sure of God's providence and now satisfied with God's provision. The two are very similar. This follows Paul's previous point. If God is sovereign, then what he gives is good. What he provides is best. We can be satisfied, therefore, 
with whatever we have. Verse 11. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And so to clarify any confusion, Paul makes it known to the Philippians he wasn't trying to manipulate them. He wasn't trying to guilt trip them or swindle them out of money. In fact, with boldness, Paul declares, I didn't need any of it. And we might expect this to rub the Philippians in the wrong way. You know, like if you offered your buddy 20 bucks and he just took it and ripped it in front of you and said, I don't need it. You would be kind of sad and hurt. But Paul here, he's not trying to offend the Philippians. He's merely expressing how he's always been satisfied with God's provision. And for emphasis, he's redundant. I myself have learned to be content. Now what we need to know is during Paul's time back then, the definition of contentment was really different from what we think of today. Back then, contentment was a mentality, a mindset that you train yourself in. You were taught to be absolutely independent, to be content by separating yourself, by removing any attachment, like emotional, distance, numb, do whatever it takes to separate yourself and be unaffected by anything. There was this Greek philosopher named Epictetus at that time who taught this method. And he said, okay, if you want to be content, begin with a cup or a household utensil. And if it breaks, say, I don't care. And then you move on. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. And if anything happens to it, say, I don't care. And then go on to yourself. If you're hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. And he says, if you go on long enough, if you try hard enough, you'll come to a state where you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. Now to us, that's just crazy, right? That's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. We would never subscribe to that. If I practice this method on my wife, Barry, she would kill me. And then I would just say, I don't care. <laughs> just kidding. But we automatically know that there's something off with this sort of contempt. There's something strange with this definition, with this strategy. Now that exercise is the shell of true contentment. But I think ours, sadly, is just as shallow, just as fragile, because we're the exact opposite. If a cup breaks, we care too much. If anything happens to our stuffed animal, oh, God forbid, our world is collapsing. And if we suffer, well, then we're ready to question the goodness of God and call it quits. We're too dependent. You see, contentment isn't about complete independence of things, like back then, or complete dependence on things, like we're prone to. Contentment, biblical contentment, is complete dependence upon God. Contentment happens not only when we accept that God is sovereign, but we trust Him to be good. And that's why this second truth cannot be divorced, cannot be disconnected from the first. Because God's sovereignty is only good news if God is good. But guys, He is. And that's why we can agree with our large and cheerful Baptist friend, C.H. Spurgeon, who said, when you can't see God's hand, you can trust his heart. 
When you don't understand all that he's doing, at least you know his proven character. Christian, you can be content in whatever God provides because you know him. You know what he's like. And if you want to see God's track record, if you need to be reminded of his goodness, then here's just one verse. Listen to Romans 8.32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Beloved, if God has not withheld his own son, what could he possibly withhold from you? If he didn't spare his precious Jesus Christ, well then we can be satisfied in whatever he supplies. God only gives what's best. So that means... If you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, it means in this season of life, in His sovereign goodness and wisdom, God determines it's best for you to be single. If you didn't make the team or you're rejected from the school you apply to, it means in this season of life, in His sovereign goodness and wisdom, God determines that's not the best route for you to take. We can fall back on His provision like a safety blanket. It comforts us until we're content. Now listen closely. Contentment is not magical. It's not something that just occurs overnight. This is something that is hard. Something that requires learning. This is something Paul had to learn. It took lesson after lesson. But if you want to echo the apostle, that in whatever situation I am to be content, then you need to embrace the daily opportunity because today's habits will become tomorrow's character. Paul describes the school he was taught in. We find this in verse 12. He says, I know how to be content because I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul takes verse 11 and he puts it into practice in verse 12. And do you see how thorough he is? Paul says he has soared to the highest point and dropped to the lowest level. He's been there, blessed by God, caught up in the third heavens, divinely able to have a foretaste of what's to come. And then he's bottomed out persecuted, beaten with rods, brought to the very brink of death. And yet, despite it all, in any and every circumstance, Paul has learned the secret. And he's whispering it to us. Now here's what we usually do. We take the circumstances we find ourselves in, and then we overlay that onto God. In other words, we make the mistake of using our circumstances to draw conclusions, to interpret God. But the secret of contentment runs in the other direction. That you are to take your theology, take your understanding of God, who He is, the treasure of Jesus Christ, and then interpret your circumstances. So guys, don't let your situation speak about your Savior. Let your Savior speak definitively, authoritatively about your situation. And when things are going great, it doesn't mean that God is playing favorites. But in Christ, God already loves you so that you can use your blessings to bless others. When you suffer, 
It doesn't mean God is displeased with you. In Christ, God loves you so your trials are for your benefit. Your contentment won't disappear when troubles arise, but it'll be strong because it has been stretched. Christian contentment moves from the inward out, not from the outward in. Don't buy into a contentment dependent on circumstances. Paul teaches contentment despite the circumstances. Students, are you satisfied with God's provision? Are you satisfied when facing times of hunger and need because you have Christ? You know, perhaps He's bringing you through difficult, humbling times so that you might not be fooled and deceived, so that your contentment won't rest on your wallet, on your GPA, or on other people. You know, maybe, in fact, He's presenting these problems not to be cruel and inflict pain, but to actually spare you of it. That your contentment won't break when your wallet, when your GPA, or other people do. Perhaps He is robbing you of all earthly treasures so you will cling on to the one that matters the only one the treasure of his son that you will be unconditionally content in Christ Thomas Watson once wrote if God dams up our outward comfort it is so that the stream of our love may run faster in another way At first glance, it seems harder to be content when you're weak or in a pinch. But I actually think the greater difficulty is when you're doing well, when you're thriving and succeeding in life. And I believe for a group like this, with our demographic, this is us. We're fortunate. We're blessed. We're smart and capable. We're go-getters. We're accomplished people. You see, when you have little, it's not hard to suffer loss. That's all you've ever known. You don't have much to begin with. But it is much harder to lose when you're so used to winning. The change is more drastic. The loss is more devastating. The struggle for contentment more elusive. And Jesus wasn't lying when he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? because there's more distractions, more hindrances along the way. When you're successful, you have more options for misplacing your happiness, satisfaction, your contentment. The poor man can only put his contentment in the crumbs he receives, while the wealthy man can put his contentment in his cars, computers, condos, and the cash he owns. But the secret in facing plenty and hunger both abundance and need is facing Christ. Paul gets to this in the last truth. Contentment is promised when we are sustained by God's power. Sustained by God's power. So sure of God's providence, satisfied by God's provision, and finally sustained by God's power. We see this in verse 13. With a loud voice, Paul says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now I'm sure all of you know how this verse has been misused 
abused, misapplied more than probably most in the Bible. You know, basketball players have it tattooed on their arms in hopes that they're going to make their free throws. Small business owners will use this verse as their magical chant for success. And I'm sure it has even been repeated and recited by guys to stir up courage before they ask that cute girl out, right? You laugh or you don't laugh because you know that that's true. But this verse is not about power to achieve our wildest dreams or the ability to overcome our greatest obstacles. And for too long, people have messed up the meaning of this verse, and therefore, they are sorely disappointed, especially when the free throw clinks off the rim, the small business collapses, or the girl says, no thank you. So what is Paul then talking about? Well, this is where context is king. And we only need to rewind to the previous verse to understand what the apostle is referring to. And when we look back, well, it's clear as day. Verse 12 is about the ability to be content in any and every circumstance. So verse 13, this verse, is about contentment. Not superhero power, but the power to be content. The secret Paul was whispering, he is now publicly shouting to us. He is able to be content in all things because God sustains and strengthens him. Now most of us are intrigued and interested with the first half of verse. I can do all things. We inch forward. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. We get all jacked up, ready to conquer the world. Let's do this. right? But Paul wants us to marvel at the end of the verse through him who strengthens me. You know, there's no denying we all want to be happy. We just have different beliefs on how to get there. Some of us believe, well, we only need to just think positively, be more cheerful. Others believe we'll be satisfied when we have one more dress, one more video game, one more dollar. Still, others think we'll be perfectly content when our problems go away and people finally treat us the way we want to be treated. But we need to realize in all these daydreams, we are exchanging the power of God for these unrealistic fantasies. These things can never satisfy because they can never sustain. They will never grant you true contentment. Because guess what? Your discipline, your motivation to be upbeat and cheerful, it's going to falter. Your nice stuff that you keep acquiring will rust and grow old. That's why you buy more things. Your problems, sure, they may go away, but they will only return to haunt you with new ones. Students, you're turning to the wrong source for contentment. It's like trying to satisfy your hunger by opening your mouth and taking in the wind, and then to complain that hunger pains still exist because you didn't get enough wind. Oh, I, I just need more air. No, that's dumb, right? The reason you're not satisfied by the wind is because the wind was never made to satisfy your empty stomach. Guys, all other sources for contentment, according to the Bible, is like gulping at the wind. God is to be your supply. God's power is sustaining power because it is the only suitable power. You get that? People often quote uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 when they're dealing with something difficult. 
Or maybe even when you're going through a trial, you've clung to the promises of that verse. Let's actually turn there really quickly so we can see. 1 Corinthians, a few books before Philippians. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. This is a great verse, but I think sometimes we, we miss the mark a little. Paul, in this verse, he says this. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, He will also provide the way of escape. That sounds good, and we stop there. We think, okay, whatever comes my way, whatever is thrown into my life, from temptations to trials, I know that God will never crush me. He's always going to provide a way of escape. And that is spot on. That is absolutely true. But have you ever considered, have you ever thought through, well, what is this way of escape? The verse finishes, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation He will also provide the way of escape. Here it is, that you may be able to endure it. To endure it. You see, when our contentment in life is threatened, whether by sin or by circumstances, God's solution isn't just to bail us out, to pluck us from the fire or from whatever is at hand. He provides the way of escape by sustaining us with His power, by enabling us to endure, to hold fast, and to be faithful to Christ. Listen, contentment doesn't mean your life will lack sorrow or need. Christian contentment is something better. It means whether you face sorrow or need, plenty or abundance. God supplies the strength to confront and handle each situation without making shipwreck of your faith. God will empower you to do what He commands, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, whether you have little in your pockets or the bursting at the seams. Contentment means... Therefore, when you are brought low, you have little, you can be content in God and not grumble or complain. And contentment also means when you are abounding, when you have a lot, you can be content in God, not to be selfish or greedy. In Christ, you can be content in all things. There's a guy named Matthew Henry who was once robbed of his wallet. And any of us, I think, in his shoes would naturally respond in a number of ways. Some of us could be frustrated with God that he could allow such a thing to happen. You know, God, why did you let, let this happen to me? I did my devos this morning, right? Or, or we could be sad at, at the loss of such a possession. That wallet was from my grandma. Why, God, why? But Matthew Henry sought to take our passage toe-to-toe with his misfortune. And he fought for contentment to the very truth that Paul presents in these verses. After reflecting upon the unfortunate incident, he wrote the following words in his journal. He wrote, I thank thee, speaking to God, I thank thee first, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, and not I who robbed. That's wise. 
Because here's a snapshot of taking what you know about God and His promises, His instruction, His word, and overlaying it on your circumstances. Here's an example of allowing Christian contentment to shape your life from the inside out. Here's a picture of what the gospel looks like in everyday life. Christian, you have much to be content with. And all of it is found in Jesus Christ, who is the radiant gem that shines forth. You can be sure of God's providence, satisfied by His provision, and sustained by His power. You can do all these things through Christ, because He's promised. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word because it is a treasure trove to us. And the most valuable gem is your Son, who you freely give to those who would repent and believe. Oh God, help our unbelief. Fortify our faith that we would trust Jesus and love Him so much so that everything would pale in comparison that His insurpassable worth would trump all. And that would then calibrate and reorient everything in our lives. That would help us to rejoice even when we're going through a dark time. Lord, that would also help us to be humble when things are going well. All this anchored in Your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.